Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 20, 12, actually, John 12. We haven't made it to 20 yet. That'll be 2025. John 12 at verse 20. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us your spirit, and that he would be busy illumining our minds so that we might understand your word. And understanding it, may it penetrate our hearts and wills, and may we live it. Father, help us in this. Nourish us on your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So much of what we have dealt with in this gospel up to this point, the, the largest portion has been... Jesus interacting with the Jews, Jesus interacting particularly with the scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests, the leaders of the Jews, but also the Jews generally. How many times have we read of the violent hatred of the Jewish leaders toward Jesus? It continually is cropping up and certainly is ramping up at this time in the life of Christ. Remember, we're in the final week of Christ's life here. But we see them time and, a to- time, and time again coming after Jesus. Uh, there are only a couple of times in this gospel when we read of Jesus interacting with those who are not Jews. He reveals that he is the Messiah, you remember, to the Samaritan woman at the well. And then, of course, there is the trial and crucifixion of Jesus yet to come in which he speaks with the Roman authorities. And then there is these few verses that bring in some Greeks. Just mention some Greeks who wish to see Jesus. It should not be lost on us that even while the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus, There are Gentiles who are coming to see Jesus and talk with him. 
Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and they rejected him. And now Gentiles are seeking him out. We know that Jesus was not merely working to redeem Jews, but he came to, as John the Baptist announced, take away what? The sin of the world. Jesus was and is the only hope for both Jews and Gentiles, for any anyone from any tribe, tongue, and nation. The prophets such as Hosea and Isaiah made this very clear. The Jews should have had some sense that it wasn't just about them and that it was also about the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul, quoting from Hosea in his letter to the Romans, makes it explicit. Romans 9, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says, In Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. What a prophecy, right? The Jews should have known this. The Jews should have have known their own prophets and their words. In the case of the Greeks we read about in our passage, they were likely Gentiles who had converted to the Jewish faith. They they had left behind their many gods and turned to the one true living God. And so notice that our passage says that these Greeks were going up to worship at the feast. They're participating in the Passover, right? They they would have, these were proselytes. These were God-fearers, they were called. These were Greeks who had converted to Judaism. And so they were celebrating the Passover, and they would come to the temple and that house of prayer for all the nations, right? Not just for the Jews, it's a house of prayer for all the nations. Um, They would come to the temple, but they couldn't go as far as the Jews, right? They were forbidden to go beyond the court of the Gentiles, and there they would worship. We don't know anything about these Greeks, we, doubt, we don't know where they are from. We don't know where they, um, who they are. We don't know their names. We don't know where they met up with Andrew and Philip. We don't even know why they went to the apostles and asked to see Jesus. We can infer that they had seen the commotion that was made um, when Jesus came into Jerusalem mounted on a young donkey and they had heard the hosannas. They maybe have been, had been singing those hosannas. And so even while the Jews are rejecting Jesus, they wish to see him. They want to see him. They wish to make their... They, they need to form their own judgment about who he is and if he is the promised Messiah. The waited for, the hoped for Messiah. They came to Philip and asked to see Jesus. Then Philip goes to Andrew. They were hometown buddies. They were both from Bethsaida. And then Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus that there are some Greeks who wish to see you. 
We don't know why they didn't simply go to Jesus directly, but they didn't. They approached Jesus' men, perhaps thinking that they had a better chance to, to speak to Jesus going through his people. Uh, interestingly, these two apostles are the only apostles that have Greek names from the start. Peter receives his later. Um, then note verse 23 says that Jesus gives an answer to Andrew and Philip. The Greeks express their wish to see Jesus, see Jesus to Philip. Philip takes the request to Andrew. Philip and Andrew take the request to Jesus. And Jesus gives an answer, it seems, to Philip and Andrew, who we expect were to take the answer back to the Greeks. But we don't read about an answer going back to them, and the answer doesn't really feel like... An, we don't know the question, we don't know his how his answer really addresses them. Some of the commentators say he blew them off. He had his work to do and he wasn't about to entertain the questions of a few Greeks. I don't know about that. I think the words that he says now, they could have been in the crowd that he was saying them to. We just, we don't know. We don't know from the text. But it reads as if Jesus is so weighed down with the matter at hand his impending death, right, that he doesn't really hear the request. It's, it's getting close to time. There is no more time for casual interaction. Pretty soon, he's going to close himself off from ev everybody except for his 12. And the rest of this book will essentially be spent with, with his 12 and with Romans who hate him and then an appearance back with the twelve. And so is this really an answer to the request to see him? Are the next few verses what Philip and Andrew are to report to him? I mean, perhaps the Greeks are there with Philip and Andrew as he says these things. Perhaps the twelve are there. We don't know. Um, perhaps it's not a direct answer to the request, but rather Jesus is seeing the commotion around him. Jews wanting to kill him. Other Jews are shouting hosannas. Right? Gentiles are coming and wishing to see him. And he's interpreting what all of that commotion means. What all of them might be thinking is that the political landscape is about to change radically. And they, both Jews and proselytes, those Gentile converts... We're about to get a serious promotion. Serious promotion. The oppressed were about to become rulers of an earthly kingdom. They can't wait. I really think it is something like that. There is a confusion about what is imminent. There's confusion about what is about to occur. And he's going to put them straight. And now how does Jesus do that? He teaches them about death. <laughs> he teaches them about death and dying. And specifically, he teaches them about his death, his dying. Right? He, he, he teaches them about the death we must all embrace as his follow, followers. And 
even as the Jews and Gentiles are anticipating his glory, he is correcting their view of how that glory will come about. He's he's correcting all of it. Again, the Son of Man will be glorified. The Son of Man will be glorified not by wresting the reins of power from the Romans, right? not by a political insurrection or even a peaceful coup, not even, not even by a long life. No, the, the glorification of Jesus would come as he overcame a much more bitter enemy than Rome. His enemy was death. And Jesus' death would abolish death. That's the enemy. The nations are a drop in the bucket, but death? Jesus had to take away the sting of death. Right? Death is the enemy. And here Jesus comes, and by his death, he abolishes death. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus draws an analogy between his life and a grain of wheat. That which appears to bring decay, that which appears to bring death and to the seed, putting it in the wet ground to rot, is actually the means by which new life springs up from that seed. And let's just call it a miracle every time it happens, you scientists. It dies in the ground and springs forth new life. Every seed planted in the ground is a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every tree, every weed, every kudzu plant. Right? It, in fact, it must be put into the ground or it will not produce new life. New life does not come by putting that seed in a jar to preserve it, setting it on a shelf somewhere. At some point, that seed has to be taken from its container, placed in the ground where it will rot, decay, and die, and live, and bring forth new life. The Apostle Peter didn't want to plant seeds. It wasn't about that. The Apostle Peter, maybe because he was a fisherman, but um, he, he would have kept Jesus from death. He, in a sense, wanted to harvest, but without planting the seed. He wanted to rush things and experience the harvest without the planting, which is impossible, right? From Matthew's gospel, we read about the, this exchange between Jesus and Peter just before the transfiguration. It goes like this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside. I mean, just think of that. Jesus is speaking about the height of his work. And the apostle Peter gets up and says, Jesus, come on. Come on. I got to talk to you. I got to set you straight. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And then what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He turned to Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You know, in all this, all this earthly kingdom versus heavenly kingdom stuff is mixed up in this. And the Apostle Peter did not want Jesus to be planted, and yet, what had Jesus been teaching them? He was teaching them that he would be killed and would be raised up on the third day. And to that, Peter says, no way. God forbid it, Lord. And Peter was upset by the idea of Christ's death. But in forbidding it, he would also be forbidding the resurrection. The amazing fruit that came from that planting of Jesus in the ground. Without death, without planning, there is no resurrection, there is no fruit. Christ's death was a seed planted that resulted in an unfathomable harvest, right? His death came, from his death came his resurrection, from his resurrection came his victory over death, from his victory over death came salvation, satisfaction, and atonement to all those who believe in him. From the salvation of all those who believe in him came worshipers of God who proclaim his glories every day. Jesus wanted his Father glorified, and so in redeeming sinners, he has made worshipers for his Father. Do you realize that that's your highest calling? That's your only calling? Is to participate in that praise? Those redeemed souls will sing praises to God eternally, a never-ending song of praise to the Creator. All that they do will be to the praise of His glory, and none of that would have been possible. None of that, would have been, none of that glorious fruit would ever have come if the seed had not died. If the eternal Son of God had not been born of a woman and submitted Himself to death as your substitute, if Christ had not died, there would have still been glory given to God. If Christ had not died, there still would have been glory given to God. All of us being damned in our damnation would demonstrate the glorious justice of the Father as we eternally existed as objects of His wrath. God will get the glory right? One way or the other. In point of fact, the damned will glorify God in this way. But a universe of only damned image bearers was never God's plan. That was not God's plan, not from the start, not from before the foundation of the world. Even before the very foundation of the world, the Son of Man was crucified. A death occurred. 
The burial of the seed for death that would produce a harvest of redeemed people was the will of God from from before the very foundation of the world. And so you see, everything in this life is not at all about you. It is about God and his will. And his will is that he would have worshipers who were rescued from death by his son, who would properly announce his glories eternally. That's it. That's the meaning of history. This is the very point of that long sentence in the opening chapter of Ephesians. Right? The long chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to this end, the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And we could go on from there. Four times, three times in this passage, it just concludes to the glory of, you know, to the praise of his glory. Everything points to the praise of his glory. You were given life in your mother's womb because God wanted a worshiper who would glorify him, or you were in your mother's womb and he was going to damn you so that you would glorify him that way. I'm not going to discount that, but he wants worshipers. He wants worshipers. Notice that repeated phrase, to the praise of his glory. The redeemed will always be a song to his glory. The redeemed will collectively be eternally singing a song to the praise of his glory. So the death of Christ is so much more than the death of a martyr. Or the death of an example for us of how to die properly. It was outside of time. It was the eternal will of the eternal God. It was the means by which God would show forth the excellency of his mercy and grace, not merely the excellency of his justice and wrath. Right, And it was to the end that there might be singers to his praise. That something more than rocks and sunrises and planets and galaxies and nebulas, that something more than those things would sing his praise. That those who have God's image on them would give him the glory due his name. This life, therefore, isn't about our, our glory. It's not at all about our glory. If it is for you, do you realize what you are doing? If this life you go just from glory to glory and from how to maximize your own glory in this life, you are attempting to steal glory from God, which is hilarious. I mean, it's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, you're dust and he's omnipotent. Do you think you will win that contest? 
<laughs> do we think we will win that contest? When we do that, when we live for our own glory, it truly is very pathetic. We are worms. We are so far from God. If we are living for our own glory and not the glory of God, you do not know what, the, what that proves of us, right? It proves we are proud. And here's the promise of God. I'm opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. The humble live for God's glory. This is their singular pursuit. The one pursuit. And how do you recognize the humble? Who are the humble? Who are the humble? Well, verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There's the path of the humble. The proud love their lives and cling to them. Their lives. Their lives in this world. The proud cling to it, right? This world is that which they want to keep. This world is precious to them. The humble hates his life in this world and does not cling to it. The eternal is what they want to keep. And so the proud reject following the miserable life of Jesus Christ. Self-denial. Walking by God's law, self-sacrifice. Those miserable things that Jesus did. The humble follow the life of Christ. The humble is where Christ is. The humble uh, serve Christ. Right? And all of that, and because of that, God will honor them. Honor them as one invited to that eternal assembly of the one singing forth his praise. So what is... What does Christ mean when he teaches us that we must hate our lives? What, is this, what does this mean? How, um, because, I mean, all of us have heard people, it's like, man, I hate life so much. Oh, I hate life. Hate it. Oh, I hate what I have to do tomorrow. I hate this. Is that how Jesus means for us to hate life? Should we be like, oh, I hate life? Well, he does not mean it is, or, or uh, you know, I mean, that's one way to view it. Another way to view it is, is like um, to view the depressive life as, as pious. Um, he does not mean by saying this that it is wrong to be joyful and happy and that our lives must be continually colored by discontented depression. It's not that. That would be sin. Okay? Jesus doesn't command you to sin. We are, remember, commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, this... This statement that you must hate life is also not an escapist sort of statement by Jesus. We are commanded to serve Christ and that means that we evangelize and get married and have kids and relieve people's suffering and, and go to college and train for a vocation and etc. etc. This is not a command that overrides his other commands. But it does inform us about what stock 
we put into each of all of those other pursuits. That's what it does. It informs us about what stock we put into that. We do not want to destroy the radical challenge of this verse either. We are so easily depressed, usually because of the very fact that our life is not going the way we would like it to. Isn't that the source of your depression? Can I see a show of hands? No, I'm just kidding. It's not going the way you want it to. This is not what you planned. You know, you didn't, get, you didn't plan to, to get sick in your 20s. You know, you didn't, you didn't plan to, to lose a child. Um, and on and on and on we could go through this. But we get so easily depressed because of the very fact that our life is not going the way we'd like to. And that may be an indication that we love our lives in the wrong way, right? It may indicate that we would rather have our good things now in this life rather than in the life to come. That's what it may indicate. That's what our depression and our discontentedness may indicate. We could put so much stock in the pursuits of this life Right? We would all become economists, study economy, fix our heads in this world. That we come, you know, we could do that and we, we would come to the view that thinking about the life to come is, is a guilty pleasure. You know, that, that we really, really shouldn't give ourselves to thinking about the life to come. The prosperity gospel and some brands of cultural transformation tend in that direction, right? Their joy comes when the gospel impacts the here and now, right? And anyone who has his aspirations fixed on the life to come to the diminishment of, of them on politics is you know, the most extreme would say, betraying Christ by, by his cowardice. How many times have I been accused of that? Postmillennialists always accuse me of that, constantly. Just go to my Facebook feeds, right? You don't care about the world? No, no. Um, no, but there is a world beyond this world and that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, right? And we're to hate this world, and we're to hate that which fixes us to this world, and those who love the world do not have the love of the Father in them, and there are glorious promises of what lies off in the future, and we're supposed to dwell in the word richly on those things and think about the glorious hope that is going to be revealed. And people tell me, well, you shouldn't do that. That's escapism. What are you checking out of, of loving your neighbor? Well, you show me how you love your neighbor and I'll show you how I do. And we'll just, we'll do a, we'll, we'll weigh them, right? We'll weigh them. You know, I preach to a, a church of people every Sunday begging for their souls, loving my neighbor, right? 
right? And you make Facebook posts about face masks. So let's weigh it in the balance, okay? Let's weigh it. We still haven't answered it, though. You're, you're unsatisfied with everything I'm saying. I realize that. I'm trying. I'm coming around here. We're going to draw in Calvin for a little help, okay? What does Jesus mean here when he says that those who love their lives lose them and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them to life eternal? Here's what Calvin says. Listen. He who under the influence of immoderate desire of the present life, cannot leave the world but by force, is said to love life. But he who, despising life, advances courageously to death, is said to hate life. Not that we ought absolutely to hate life, which is justly reckoned to be one of the highest of God's blessings, but because believers ought cheerfully to lay it down when it slows them from approaching to Christ. Just as a man, when he wishes to make haste in any matter, would shake off from his shoulders a heavy and disagreeable burden. In short, to love this life is not in itself wrong, provided that we only pass through it as pilgrims, keeping our eyes always fixed on our object. For the true limit of loving life is when we continue in it as long as it pleases God and when we are prepared to leave it as soon as he shall order us. Or to express it in a single word, when we carry it as it were in our hands, our lives, we carry our lives in our hands and offer them to God as a sacrifice. Yours, do with it what you will, not mine. My life is nothing to me. I give it up to God in sacrifice. Whoever carries his attachment to the present life beyond this limit destroys his life. That is, he consigns it to everlasting ruin. For the word destroy does not signify to lose or to sustain the loss of something valuable, but to devote it to destruction. And so, in other words, to, 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 to summarize Calvin, we're pilgrims here in this life. Pilgrims. There ought to be a difference between you and those influencers you envy on YouTube who love this life and laugh through it, going from one ex- amazing experience that must be shared with the world to the next. There's got to be a difference between you. <laughs> Maybe that's too broad of a, a difference, right? Maybe that's too easy. But there ought to be a difference between you and the one who who clings to the experiences of this life. Did you catch what Calvin said? Those who love life are those who, because of their intense desire, can't leave the world, but only do so when they are forced to. Right? When you're forced to. 
Like you have to be rebuked to leave behind the world and your tendency is just always like, you're, you know, there's, when you're driving and your car's out of alignment and it's constantly pulling and you're like that when it comes to the world, you're just out of alignment and you're constantly pulling to the world and you got to force the wheel to come back, right? That's what he's saying. Do you need to be forced back from the world? Is this us, brothers and sisters? Jesus, think of Jesus. He was a man of sorrows. And we, we get depressed because we don't have good things like some other people have around us. We get depressed. How can this be when we have been saved and we have been saved from hellfire? How can this be? That we would envy the wicked when we've been saved from hell and adopted into God's family and look forward to the, that life that commences with Christ's glorious return. How could this be? Hating your life is not a call to a depressive life. It's definitely not that. Hating your life is living in a way that this life is not all there is, that it has been sacrificed, that you've given it up by faith to God. In fact, hating your life looks like exactly like Christ's life. He was a man of sorrows and did not have any rest, any place to put his head in this life, but he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He had glory ahead of him that animated him in this life. Is that true of you or are you seeking too much from those, those, those mud pies that Matt mentioned to us last Sunday? Now those who hate their lives actually live joyfully because they are anticipating the glory that is to come. They can work in slums. They can endure persecution and insults. They can suffer even the seizure of their property. They can receive the grim diagnosis. They can lose friends. They can carry their cross because God is their portion. God is their portion. Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Now put yourself in, in the mind of the writer. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death. And their body is fat in a healthy way. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, as people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them, they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High God? How did, what's, is he, 
What's going on? Behold, these are the wicked and are always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into your sanctuary. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, right? When I was thinking wrongly, I was like a beast before you. When I was envying the wicked, I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's what it means to hate your life. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works." That, that demonstrates what I'm talking about here. Those, those who hate this life so long for God and for eternal life that, that somebody observing them would remark about how they seem to only have one love. Right? They, they, would be, they would look at you and they, they would not be like, man, he's got like six hobbies. He's intense in his hobbies. You know, he fixes cars up and he, uh, he, he ping pong, man. Dude can play ping pong. No, they would look at you and they'd be like, he only ever talks about God. Why is he always singing praises under his breath? Why is he like... Why is he always like when, when something happens, he's analyzing it through the lens of Scripture? Or, or why when other people are going and, and indulging themselves, is he like, no, I've got other things to do? And he goes off and just pursues God. You know, somebody who knows Scripture, who's a concordance, somebody who's always searching it because he, he has this God he loves deeply and gives himself to it. And so I think what it means to hate your life is to be so abounding in love to God that it clearly appears that everything in us in your life is a way far second and everybody who perceives it is like, man, he hates all those things. It's like he hates his own wife, he loves God so much. And of course... A godly man can't hate his wife. 
and doesn't hate his wife. But it looks like that because of the intensity of his love for God. And so, is that us? I mean, seriously. Is that us? Is that me? It's not. Should that be us? Have we clung to this world so tightly? Would we rather be the rich man and not Lazarus? We'd rather have our good things in this life and, and uh, bad things in the next. May it be that we love God to the point where all those around us perceive it as hating the world. 